this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure, maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. You know, on this show, I'm always crapping all over private equity, but to be fair, there are some good private equity companies out there, and I consider John Dalton one of the good guys. John is our next guest. He started a company called Industrial Device Investments, and what's interesting about John is he started with Black & Decker and GE, so he's got operational experience, and you'll see in this interview how he used that to buy a company, ultimately 3X'd his money in 18 months. It's a pretty cool outcome for John. I thought it'd be interesting to interview John for you so you can sort of get inside the head of a private equity buyer, sort of visualize what they see when they're looking at your business, the kind of deal that they're looking to structure if they go and buy your company, what makes you attractive to them. It's not for everybody, but certainly a private equity deal can be, if you find the right PE firm, and there, there are some good ones, uh, it can be a good exit option. And again, John, I think, does a pretty good job of getting you inside the head as what he sees when he evaluates a potential investment. Here to tell you the rest of the story is John Dalton. John Dalton, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. It's fun to talk about a company. So tell me about this business, Aerial Access Equipment. What, what did you guys do? So Aerial Access Equipment had been around a couple of decades. The founder uh, had been in that industry and then gone off on his own. Was sort of headed, what was the industry? Uh, so they were a uh, rental equipment company for large uh, equipment used in the Louisiana industries for oil and gas and, uh, and construction. So they rented uh, high reach lifts and, and uh, outdoor fork trucks for construction, stuff like that. Oh, cool. So if you're, you know, if you have a one-off need for one of those things that you kind of roll up on wheels and that goes up super high and there's like a little, you can tell I know nothing about this, but <laughs> there's like a, a guy who <laughs> gets in there and, you know, like can reach out for something very high. Is that the Skyjack? Is that, is that the equipment that that, uh, yeah, it's, that, it's that kind of equipment. But envision people are uh, fabricating oil uh, platforms that are going to go into the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, and they need to be able to reach to uh, to do all the fabrication. That, so, that kind of application. Got it. And so, if you didn't need this stuff on an ongoing basis, you might rent it. What would one of these units cost? Like, what would a typical you know uh, rental agreement run? Hmm. Uh, probably. 
a thousand, two thousand per uh, per day, and then it would go into sometimes longer agreements for weeks or months, depending on what the customers' uh, needs are. I'm, I'm not actually sure on the rental side, the dollar amount there. The, f- the first thing I think about is insurance. Your insurance bills must have been through the roof. Yeah, that's definitely uh, definitely a part of cost control was to understand how to manage insurance and and uh, how that went up and down with newer equipment or older equipment and, and how to manage that piece of the business. There's a little bit of art to that. So you you actually didn't start this company, but you bought it. What what made you buy it? Like, what was it about the business that made you think this is a cool business? I want to own it. Yeah, I think on the buy side, you're buying uh, into uh, people, and that, that's either an existing team that's there uh, or a team that you can build with the business. But uh, you know, products and markets can change. Uh, good people are hard to find and hard hard to keep. So uh, finding a, a the team that you think can execute well is is always in the mind of a of a buyer. Uh, so. I guess my my first thought is, but wait a minute, you're you're going to lose the team the moment you buy the business, right? Because you're buying out the owner. So I'm assuming the owner hits the beach and you lost the team or at least the the quarterback of the team. No? Some owners hit the beach. um, Many owners do not. So in that experience, uh, our our owner stayed about five years, uh, which in, in this particular case was longer than we were in the deal. So you liked the the owner and the team, but what else did you like? I mean, give us a sense of the, of the metrics of the business. Like how big was it? Kind of how much kind of either revenue or profit, like just give us a sense. Is it thousands of employees, 10 employees that come? Like- now it was, uh, I, it was about 25 employees and, uh, probably 8 million in revenue, a million, million and a half in profit when we started. And so how did you, how did you figure out what it was worth? Uh, so there's uh, there's there's a few different ways to look at valuation. Uh, in this case, you've got two that are uh, that apply. Uh, the one one is kind of the the central way people would value companies, which would be in a multiple of earnings. Uh, the other case, in this case, it was an asset intensive business, so you could look at asset value as well. So it was a combination of those two. Because you had a lot of these cranes and like the equipment was worth a lot of money. Yeah. How did, so, so how was the value, how was the valuation on a multiple of EBITDA versus the asset? Like which, which ended up being the higher valuation? I think earnings and EBITDA always rule. <laughs> um, but the asset you got in, in an asset intensive business, like, uh, uh, you know, a rental company, then the then the value of the equipment certainly plays in at a secondary level. So how would, the, so give me a sense of, and we don't, if you can't share the exact valuation for Ariel, you could certainly talk to me in general terms about either kind of a service business or a rental business with some assets. Like how would you typically value that? Is it multiple of EBITDA plus assets or like, just give me a sense of the, the, no, the, uh, uh, those those would be two different approaches that would hopefully converge on on a, a similar valuation. But uh, you know, with EBITDA, you're looking at cash generation, and and the, and a multiple there would would certainly be applicable. Okay, yeah, because my sense is that that generally you can't mix valuations. Either you're going to use an asset valuation, in which case it's the value of the assets, obviously, or you're using some sort of either comparables or multiple of EBITDA or discounted cash flow, which would be 
is separate. So you'd, you'd argue that the assets are required to generate the profit and therefore you can't double count them. Yeah, you're not double counting. You're trying to converge uh, both methods in this case on on what you think is the right valuation. Right. So let's just imagine, uh, and again, I'm assuming you can't speak directly about Ariel in terms of what you paid. Correct. Okay. So let's just imagine a business that has a million dollars in EBITDA, uh, hypothetical business, and and also has four million dollars of assets. Um, you know, what would you exp- so again depends on the industry, et cetera. But let's imagine you were thinking of paying, say, five x EBITDA. So on a multiple of EBITDA, it's worth five million. On an asset, mm-hmm. it would be worth four million. And there, and therefore, as an investor, you're looking at it and saying, well, either way you look at it, they're pretty close. Am I getting roughly your thinking? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You're trying to converge there. Uh, on on what you think is uh, the right you know uh, valuation to bid uh, to bid right right and Warren Buffett always talks about you know this idea of of buying companies uh, I believe it says what when the book value it's actually below is it below the intrinsic value that that he buys companies yeah I I don't I don't quite understand his methods there. I, I respect Warren Buffett a lot, of course, but and I don't quite know how he gets to some of the uh, that that part of his uh, financial uh, assessment. Someone will uh, have to explain it to me because it goes way beyond my head. <laughs> oh, we'll have to get Warren on the show. That'll be what we'll do. Yeah, there you go. So, so, so this is helpful. So you're looking at company and you're saying uh, multiple of EBITDA. Uh, you're you're going to pay X. If I just look at the assets value, I'm Y. And I guess from an investor perspective, my assumption is that that if the if the value of the company is not far outreaching the value of the assets, that gives you more confidence in making the purchase because clearly there's something to fall back on if 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 the EBITDA doesn't materialize. Is that generally the thing? Yeah, that that that's a good. I think that's a good way to look at it. It's. Um but but only for an asset a heavy business like a rental equipment company i mean we could we could find other examples of heavy uh you know asset intensive businesses but uh, for many if you bought a company that assembled a a particular product that might not take very much assets so asset uh, valuation might not play into it very much at all. Yeah, like a, a IT company, for example, or a software yeah. company where the, there's very few assets. Okay, that's helpful. But for you, that gave you a sense of comfort knowing that the the value you were paying was not far in excess of the value of the assets, essentially. It, it was both comfort and it's one of the things assets are helpful for is is how you can finance it. Tell me more about that. So if you had in your hypothetical example, if you had $4 million of assets, uh, then those assets are worth something for collateral for financing. So it's, it's easier to buy that company if, if, if with the $4 million of, of assets because it can be collateral. What percentage of the uh, assets would you expect a bank to finance? Well, with real estate, it would uh, usually be 70 to 80, maybe 85%. Um, equipment, a little bit less. Uh, um, in, in, in this case, with uh, rental equipment, I think we were 
right around the 80% mark. Got it. So when you looked at Ariel as a potential investment, you said, I can buy this company and look, I got some assets to fall back on, number one. Number two, I can finance the purchase or at least a portion of the purchase price because of these assets as well. I like the team and the founders willing to stay on. What other things did you like about Ariel? I think the the market we saw is promising. Uh, at that at that time, then uh, oil and gas was uh, going pretty strong, and the opportunity for all of the this is a Louisiana-based business that did a lot of uh, oil and gas infrastructure uh, work, and so we we thought there was there was good opportunity in that market. And so, were there other bidders at the table when you when you went to buy the company? Uh, there were uh, we, and in fact, we lost the first round. Uh, and the uh, the buyer that won was not able to close, was not able to, uh, I don't know, I guess it was financing. Uh, and and so uh, we re-engaged and, uh, and the second time around, uh, we were able to get the deal closed. So how many folks got to the sort of dance in the first round? Like you were there, there were the guys who, who originally got the deal, but weren't able to find it. So how many other folks at the table? Probably two or three. I, I, don't, I don't really have any specific data on on that but that was based on all the discussions and war stories then there was something like that yeah yeah and how did you ultimately prevail i think there was buy-in to the uh to what we could do to help the company both from its strategy and its uh uh, operations strategy finance and operations so that that was sort of my part at the private equity uh, fund i'm uh, I've spent some time being a private equity and investor uh, type role, but most of my career is around company operations. Because um, you were like you worked at Black and Decker, uh, Black and Decker, and some of the the big industrial companies, as, as I recall. What, where else did you work? I've forgotten. So I started at GE Plastics. Right. Uh, they've sold that business off since, uh, but it was about a six billion dollar. Uh, division of GE with thermoplastics uh, products. Uh, went back to business school. Uh, went to Black and Decker in manufacturing management, uh, and then was with a series of smaller companies before I got into the M and A world. And so, in in this business, Ariel, like, what did you see from an ops perspective? Like wearing your Black and Decker GE hat. Like, what? Did, where did you see you could pick up some extra value if they applied? what sort of strategies or um, ideas that, that you could add some value? You know, at Black & Decker, it was, uh, we were manufacturing benchtop power tools, so miter saws and table saws under the De- DeWalt trade name. I think uh, I have a few in my garage, actually. I, I hope you do. <laughs> uh, so, well, you know, what I learned was it didn't really apply that much. Um, we really had, it wasn't really a sort of quality control, lots of data tracking. Uh, uh, operation that they needed. And we really, it was really more around uh, great uh, maintenance, uh, reactive maintenance, some proactive and preventative maintenance. Um, But the statistical Six Sigma quality control type stuff that you see in volume factories really didn't apply to 
to the uh, rental equipment business. So going back to Ariel, when you came to the table, you're like, we can help them with strategy, we can help them with finance, and we can help them with ops. So specifically around ops operations, what did like where did you see there was maybe efficiencies to gain? Uh, they they were not doing uh, really any preventative maintenance to speak of, and we helped them with. Uh, some vibration analysis tools and some other uh, ideas that, uh, that, that to to to, to try to find a failure before it broke. Right, uh, that because was our main cost, effort. Got it. These things would cost a fortune to fix or replace. I'm assuming. So if you could, it's like an airplane. If you can fix the problem before it becomes a major problem, then you save millions, tens of millions. Sure. Any any big equipment is that way. So, so you're helping kind of professionalize the way they did preventative maintenance. Yeah, and you know that's to, that's an example of where smaller companies need help uh, from an investor's perspective. And a couple of the companies I've been involved with, then you know you you have a great operations team and and maybe strong engineering and product, but they don't have uh, you know good, very good selling methods. So, you know, that's you, you work on what needs to be worked on. Yeah. So from a finance perspective, again, I'd be curious to know what you saw the opportunity um, to be. So how, how could your uh, inclusion in the mix help from a financing perspective? So I was the operating guy. My partner was the finance guy. And, and so it, was, it would be his skills that were primarily applied there. Part, part of it is getting uh, financing done well and at the lowest uh, uh, cost for the initial uh, deal. And then there's, you know, that business is so asset intensive and and so uh, capital intensive that uh, being able to manage that banking relationship as equipment is coming in and out and as the company is growing and needing needing, uh, more uh, capital, then managing that financing relationship was very important. Got it. Yeah, because of course this equipment would be financed. They're not buying these cranes outright. I'm assuming. Usually not. I mean, in that case, we had a financing package um, that was across the company, so we weren't financing each individual piece of equipment, but we had, you know, a, a banking and sub debt relationship that was related to the whole purchase of the company, and and as the company went up in size, then our, our financing capacity would go up as well. Got it. Can you define sub-debt? So in the capital structure of companies, you have the uh, sort of higher, highest risk area would be equity, and the lowest risk area would be uh, bank financing or senior financing. Sub-debt fits in the middle. It's... Uh, some of the risk of the equity, but at, at uh, typically lower um, lower prices. Got it. So it's it's the sub comes from the word subordinate. So it's subordinate debt to the uh, senior bank facility. So if you had a line of credit or or equipment financing, uh, those are senior debt, typically senior debt uh, arrangements, and the subordinated debt it has a second lien behind the senior debt. Okay, so I think I get what sub debt is or subordinate debt. How did that play a role in this aerial transaction? Uh, only in the sense of you know the the the, the 
entire capital base for the company. You've got equity, sub debt, and, and senior debt. And we, we tried to manage that to, to optimize. We didn't want to minimize the equity, but we weren't interested in investing more than we needed to. Uh, we, and, and then on the other side, you, you, using leverage is good, but over leverage is bad, is bad and painful. So there's a balance. I guess I get it at a 30,000 foot level, but I'm still a bit hazy on the specific. So, so you're from an investor perspective, trying to put as little cash into the deal, capital to the deal, and try to get as much senior debt, bank debt, essentially, so that the most economical debt is used and you're, you maximize essentially your return on investment. Am I getting that part at least right? Yes, but if you use a little, as little equity as you can and you do too much maximization of, of debt, then you take on a lot of risk. So there's a balance there of sort of the right amount of equity and debt uh, to, to maximize return and, and moderate risk. And how do you figure that out? You know, that's a good question. Uh, I asked when I started with the private equity fund, I asked my partner that and he chuckled and said, you, you just have to kind of know. And, and over time of, of giving mix of, of where, how models look and, and what you think of uh, the stability of the company. And there's a whole variety of factors that go into that. And I don't, I don't have a good answer for what, what the right mix is. It depends on a lot of different things. Got it. And so let's get into the actual sale because you put money into this deal. You bought the company. Um, where does it go from there? Because ultimately you sold it. Maybe let's turn to our attention to the sale of the company. Okay. So in, in this case, we had uh, we were a small private equity fund uh, in, in Atlanta and we had co-invested with another private equity fund uh, in Atlanta to in uh, in cooperating on the deal. And over time, it became clear that uh, this was a company that would be better run, uh, you know, with one company, with one investor in charge. Uh, so we had a buy-sell arrangement with our co-investor. And in that case, the buy-sell was, was uh, structured so that you could, if you, if you triggered the clause, then you would make an offer that you had to be comfortable either buying or selling under the terms that you had offered. So one party would offer and the other would decide whether they wanted to buy or sell. And, uh, and in that case, my partner and I decided to sell. So, so did you initiate the buy sell and come up with an offer price? Uh, I would say it was, it was pretty mutual on, uh, on the idea that it, it, things could work better with a single owner. The other private equity fund was, more interested in expanding in that industry. Uh, and that wasn't really an interest of ours. We wanted to have more of a uh, diverse uh, investment base. So uh, it was uh, it was the right thing for our purposes to sell at the time. Got it. And so just specifically the mechanics. So uh, you're kind of co-investing. Was there a was there a trigger, like a heated conversation where they're like, but we want to triple the size of this thing and you don't want, like, do you remember what triggered the conversation about, well, maybe we should just uh, look to part ways? Yeah, I think it was over time, you know, we had uh, two board members each from, from the two funds and then the uh, seller who stayed with the business um, for, for a long time. Uh, was the fifth board seat. And, and I think over time, 
Uh, we just got to the kind of mutual uh, agreement that it would be better off for, for one firm to be uh, the, the primary investor. So there wasn't a heated conversation. There was a point at which the buy sell had to get triggered. Um, Tell and, me about that. Uh, that was, uh, so that was the partner from the other fund approached my partner and uh, said that, that, you know, they just, we, we'd had discussions around the topic. We'd never really addressed it directly. And, and he said they decided to address it directly and they were going to make an offer. Got it. And then, so what was your reaction when you saw the offer? And to be clear, uh, this was an offer to buy the business from you. Or, or an offer upon which we could, we could buy their share of the mm-hmm. business. So it's, that's the buy-sell mechanism there that was used. Um, so we were pleased. It was, a, it, was a, it was a very good return on our investment. We, we uh, about tripled our money over 18 months, which doesn't happen very often. Um, so it was a good, uh, offer from our standpoint and based on the idea that, uh, the other fund wanted to uh, have other investments in the industry, uh, and that we wanted to diversify to us. It just made sense that we were the one to exit. Got it. And so you in turn accepted their offer. Correct. What kind of negotiations were involved? Did you guys hack through deal terms or did you try to kind of get them to increase their offer? It was, or was it sort of, this is the offer, take it or leave it. Yeah. The negotiation really took place before then when we did the deal, uh, then we, then we constructed the buy sell. So it was sort of pre-negotiated, uh, not the price, but the, the, the sort of terms and how the, how the, uh, how a, uh, a purchase of one by the other would work. Uh, so there wasn't any haggling, uh, on that, it was you made the offer. You had to be you had to be willing to buy or sell under that offer, and and uh, that was sort of the 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 bulk of the discussion. The rest of it was legal documentation. If you were advising an entrepreneur who was considering uh, doing a buy sell agreement with a partner, what sorts of things should they contemplate before papering that deal? In other words, what what sorts of things would 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 they need to incorporate into that agreement before signing it? Yeah, I think there's lawyers that make a pretty good career out of this and books written on the subject. So I'm not I'm not sure I would rely on, on my comments here as, as necessarily very complete advice. But uh, I, I think the uh, idea is while things are good, work out how you would separate. Um, and don't wait until after you have a problem to have to have that discussion. Sure. Um, I think that's, I think we've, that that sort of wisdom at a 30,000 foot level, I've sort of heard before. I'd be interested though, like specifically what sorts of things would you want to work out? Clearly the price is not something you necessarily work out because that's what triggers the buy sell, but, but, but the terms under which you would separate, like what sorts of things would you make sure were there? When you're constructing the buy sell? Yeah. Um, so many times the, the price is not ambiguous, or at least the, uh, uh, say a multiple is not. So you could agree that one could sell, you know, buy the other out at a five multiple of EBITDA or, or something less cash, maybe in plus debt. Um, but it, it, so, so there, there's different structures there. 
I grew a strong, uh, I really liked that way that it worked uh, with our partner on that, uh, with where you were comfortable. You didn't, we didn't have to negotiate price before we knew anything. And so at the point, this is 18 months later, the price was uh, assessed uh, by our, our partner, the buyer. And, and, uh, but the structure of the buy sell was already there. So we, we didn't really need to, uh, to do a lot to affect the transaction. It was, it was sort of it, the, the structure of it made it very clean. So uh, I would, I would, uh, I guess my advice would be to make it simple and clean, uh, such as, uh, as that. And I didn't author that. So it's not my, uh, structure just worked well for us. Got um, it. So I assume that you put in a relatively small amount of capital, used quite a bit of debt in order to buy the company, which enabled you to triple your money in 18 months. Unless like the company tripled in size, that would be, I think, the only way you would actually get that sort of return. Am I getting that part about right? Yeah. Yeah, we had done uh, well over the 18 months. We certainly hadn't tripled. I, I think it had grown oh, 20% a year uh, because we we brought in some new equipment and enabled the company to grow. So it certainly hadn't tripled. The company hadn't tripled in size. But the the uh, it's so it's the use of the leverage that made the equity worth uh, that much more. We've been able to pay down some of the debt. And, uh, and, and, and the dynamics of where, where things were from an earnings basis had improved, uh, you know, nicely from, from where we started. Uh, but the leverage helps you get more for your equity. That's for sure. Yeah. And, and the leverage you're referring to is the money you borrowed from the bank in order to buy the company. Correct. And, and that was guaranteed or the collateral the bank used was in, in part the assets of the company, these because it was a relatively asset-rich company. Did the bank also ask for a personal guarantee? Uh, they did not, uh, but uh, it's a, so, so it's a little different negotiating world in the, in where the, it is a private equity fund that really can't do uh, a, a personal guarantee versus an individual owner. Uh, so there's, it's a little bit different negotiation there than a, an, a sole owner might have. Right, but the owner... Gene, I think, carried some equity through the deal, right? Because when you bought the yeah, company, he did, he had some rollover. Yeah, but he he we I mean he ended up with uh, I can't remember what exactly what it was ten or fifteen percent of the company. He wouldn't have personally guaranteed, you know, the other eighty five percent. Right, right. Would he would he have been asked to? Guarantee his portion of the debt, if you know what I mean. Like if he's ten percent shareholder in after the money came in, would that 10% have been personally guaranteed? No, it's, I mean, bank, you're either, uh, the the company is either uh, doing well and not in violation of covenants or it is in violation of covenants. It's not in violation of 10% of it. Right, right. You can see how little I know about about using debt to buy companies, but this is fascinating. (laughs) So how how did the founder end up uh, sort of making out in this in this deal. Clearly, uh, he was able to get 80, 85% of his uh, you know, value out when you, when you and your partner purchased the firm. Yes. How did, how did you know, I, I've heard this term. The so he second, stayed, we stayed no. uh, in the deal uh, a year and a half. Um, the founder stayed 
five or six years, uh, was able to sell his remaining share uh, to our previous partner. Uh, and and by uh, I don't I don't have any contact with the founder anymore, but uh, you know had had done reasonably well and and had been able to make a successful exit. Yeah, I've heard uh, I've heard this term second bite of the apple before where the the founder sort of holds on a bit of equity and then sells it downstream 3 5 7 years later. Uh that sounds like what what happened in this case, although we don't know sort of how it worked out economically for him. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm pretty sure it worked out economically well. Um just just from the uh the hearsay. Um and and you're right. He 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 sold uh, 85% of the company to start with. So he had some financial success, even, you know, from, from the get go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, we hear all these horror stories about private equity deals. I, 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 you know, I've probably shared my fair share as well. You know, what, I guess one question I, I have is, you know, from your perspective, uh, you know, let me, the kind of stereotypical, you know, per, you know, perception of a private equity deal is that, you know, the private equity money comes in, a bunch of Harvard MBAs come to the table, they think they've got hotshot, you know, uh, management theories, and, and they put all this kind of Wall Street theory onto some very small company. The owner bristles under the advice. How dare you tell me how to run my company? Blah blah blah, and and it blows up into this you know major thing. And the owner feels you know um, stuck because they've got equity still in the game. They can't just say go to hell, but they they kind of want to. Um, so that's the sort of stereotype, right? And I'm sure you've heard yeah. it before. W- Absolutely. What advice would you give owners considering sort of a PE deal or an offer from a private equity company? Uh, be careful, I think would be my first advice. Um, you know, you got to know the, the uh, sort of the guardrails of, of uh, what's uh, the situation. In other words, uh, if your private equity fund has a website that says it typically will exit in five or six years, then uh, I, it, it's not a very good idea to assume that they're going to own the company for 10. Um, so if your goal is to be there for 10, then you got to realize you're going to go through multiple ownerships. Uh, and, and, you know, the private equity is a business like all the businesses. It's there, uh, you know, it, it it exists because it's, seeking to make a return for its investors. So, you know, the, the fund will act in its own interest, uh, just like, you know, all, all of us uh, do and, and need to, uh, you know, for, for our families or for whatever purpose. They're, they're, in that case, it's for their investors. There's a whole other group of investors that would be called family offices that, you know, from on, a, on the example I gave for timeframes, that don't have a time frame because uh, there there's no driver of institutional uh, you know uh, investment in the in the family office that ma- that mandates a five year time frame for instance. <clears throat> so you have to you know, kind of match what your expectations are with what the character of the fund is. I think uh, I mean that, that maybe sounds too simple, but. No, uh, I, research and understanding the understanding who your co-investor is 
is pretty darn important. Yeah, that's that's for sure. So that would be referred to kind of on, on a PE firm's website as kind of the hold period. Would that be fair? Yeah. 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 So what else are, you know, what other things should, should, a, should an entrepreneur look out for? What other gotchas or, or sort of mistakes do you see when, when they agree to a PE deal? Uh, I think folk industry focus. Um, I, I don't, I, I know of a lot of private equity funds that invest in all kinds of industries and some of them are very successful. But if I was an entrepreneur, I would want somebody that understood my business and understood my industry. Uh, so, you know, understanding, you know, that for the, for the broad portfolio and for the goals of the fund, are those aligned with your company and, and your industry? And, you know, if you have a private equity fund that, uh, specializes in a particular industry and 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 that matches your industry then they ought to at least understand the dynamics of the industry and 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 that would make things easier one of the things that i've all, i've often kind of been curious about is is how the private equity investor can possibly know more than the founder. Like, here's this guy who's who's run this company with these cranes to the oil fields for decades, right? They know every inch of the business where all the bodies are buried. I mean, they know the business outright. And the private equity company comes in and and sort of uh, says, "Oh, well, we've got all these you know ideas about how we can manage your company better." Like, how could they possibly know <laughs> more than the owner who knows, like, has been doing it? for decades like that's so, something so i never understood they won't they won't ever know the company no. as well as the owner would yeah but they may know lots of other things that could help or could distract it depends um so they might know lots about the industry or better ways to finance or uh possible expansions or you know all kinds of ways to help the company the the challenge i think many entrepreneurs have is they don't have the time to work on their business. They're only working in the business. So well, yeah, the delivering Gerber expression. Yeah. The, yeah. So, you know, th- this is the, the private equity folks have never, or may never have worked in a business uh, or, or may have that experience base, but they're not, uh, their, their, their charter it would only be to help work on the business. And, if they have any, you know, if they have, if they're very skilled, then they'll make that a collaborative effort. And how do you, as a PE investor, like, how do you couch advice? Because I can imagine it's tough because you've got an owner who's, you know, been around the block, and and you've got this advice about using vibration testing to, you know, to check the industrial, like the integrity of these machines, whatever. Like, how do you couch that so that it doesn't fall on deaf ears that they don't get their backup saying, like, how dare you tell me how to run this business? How, yeah. do, you, how do you go about? So, that? I guess, sort of on average, my experience is most smaller business owners are either great operators or great salespeople. And they're not usually both. Uh, so some of that comes from their experience. Some of that just comes from, you know, what their strengths are individually. Um, it, our, our approach has always been to try and help, uh, you know, where, where they need the help, not in the area where they're experts. So we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't try to tell that great operator how to re- operate his business better because he probably knows well. And, you know, we ought to be able to come up with some metrics to show that and or not show that. But at least then, you know, you kind of have some data around what they're experts at. But most folks are willing to 
listen when they're in the part of the business that they're not experts in and where they could use some help. And that, that's, that's usually where the um, not so deaf ears are. Got it. So going back to my original question around sort of what advice you would give to an entrepreneur considering a private equity investor. One thing is to look for their hold period if they've got a like, publicly stated duration. Another is what their industry focus is and make sure that there is some industry focus if possible. What else would you advise an entrepreneur to look for or not look for? You know, I think the, the private equity, uh, the, the firm, the private equity firm is investing in the people at the operating company. But the co the, the the operator has to be willing to partner with the private equity fund. So some of that people dynamics, to the extent that you can um, understand the people and be willing to, you know, partner with them, is uh, is crucial. Uh, like any business deal that's going to have a uh, something measured in in years, if not decades, you you got to understand who you're getting into business with and. And, and have ways of managing when there are issues. Can you give me an example of a deal? And we don't have to use names here, but an example of, a, of an owner that you were kind of dating with, you, you sort of checked out their business, you were thinking of making an investment, and, and there were the, the people dynamics, like there was something they said or did that led you to believe that you couldn't work with them? Is there, is there, just I'd love to know kind of specific example of something that would lead you to believe the people dynamics wasn't, wasn't a great fit. Well, I, I can't think of anything there, but I can think of a situation that had gone bad. Yeah. And that is an investment we made uh, with my uh, first company uh, within industrial device investments. Uh, we made an investment for a company that had products in an adjacent market. Uh, and, and we, I, I I looked at that in hindsight, I looked at the deal as though I was working with a family and what I didn't do a very good job of understanding and figuring out about the partnership was the individuals amongst the family. And it turned out that the the father and the son-in-law didn't get along very well. And we, we were thinking that the family would get along and of course not all families get along. Uh, so we had, we had to navigate that and that, and that is, a, an example that ended up not going so well. They had some industry funding issues as well. And we ended up, uh, shutting the business down about, uh, two years into the, after the acquisition. Family dynamics never, never seem to end well when they involve family businesses and, and, uh, <laughs> and money, yeah. uh, John, I, I'm so grateful for you uh, and your patience with my questions. I think um, you know it, it's uh, it's great to get underneath some of these deals. We hear all about the, the you know PE deals, and, and we talk a lot about it on the show. So it's great to actually hear from you and, and some of the things that you think people should look out for and and how they should approach it. Is there a way if someone wanted to reach out to you? Is there a good way to reach out? I mean, do you, do you accept LinkedIn connections or are you do you have a website? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, John Dalton. Uh, our our fund is industrial device investments. Uh, our website is uh, idinvest.net. So www.idinvest.net. Uh, and my email is john at idinvest.net. So I'd welcome any uh, questions or uh, or ideas. 
John Dalton, thanks for joining us. All right. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.